All right, here we go. It's Friday, January 21st, 2022. And um, the news today, when I woke up at uh, early, early this morning, I saw that meatloaf had died. So the question of the day for you, Kirk, is if meatloaf wasn't already taken, would that have been your stage name? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so, uh, <clears throat> Sheldon. I mean, I really like meatloaf uh, as far as eating it, but um, I don't know. It just, uh, I think of different names I'd rather be. So what would, you have, what would you have picked if you ended up uh, being a rock star and you didn't want to go with Kirk? I don't know. I've actually, The Watcher. The Watcher? I would call, my, I would call it The Watcher. Why is that? Uh, simply because all my life I have watched trying to figure out how people, why they do things they do, how civilization works, what's going to happen, what has happened in the past, what can I learn from it? So I find myself watching, so to speak, history and the future and the present um trying to figure it out and what are you seeing right now oh i see definitely a um a civilization that's in rapid decline uh, no question about that on uh, quite a few different fronts uh, i i don't see a lot of good directions happening right now it's just it's starting to approach free fall all right, Sorry well, that's a good, good opening, a excellent uh, start to the stream, full of hope, full of uh, excitement. But the other thing I saw in my feed today when I was on Facebook looking for med medical advice was I saw this. Please explain the Durston X-Mid Pro 2 to our audience. Well, I would have to say that I have had inside information about the development of this tent. First of all, it's not mine. I know the name's the same. It happens to be designed by one of my sons, but uh, this guy is a fanatic. Uh, he's a fanatic hiker and a, a, a stickler, an artist a for detail and perfection. And uh, so he's got literally hundreds of nights in tents, um, thousands of miles of hiking and that's where he thought that he conceived his baby the ultimate ultralight tent uh as far as quality lightness and everything everything else of course I, i'm not somebody might accuse me of being biased a little bit um i i'm trying to answer objectively well i i can just say after watching uh if you haven't seen the whole YouTube video. It's about five and five and a half minutes. We're not going to show it today uh, because we're not getting any money from Durston uh, tents. But um, uh, I would say, Dan, if you're open to it, we would love to talk sponsorships here. Um, <laughs> this tent looks really cool. If I was outdoorsy at all, I would probably look at this thing as a uh, as a purchase. But um, yeah, I, I prefer a tent that's actually made out of uh, cement and wood and um, is solid as a foundation, uh, preferably yeah. a street address, and I own it. So that's my idea of a tent. That's a little tough to carry around with you in the wilderness. Not like this thing, which is a pound and a half. Yeah, 20 ounces. It's incredible. I've got two of his tents already. Um, 
I have the one man and the two man. This is an ultralight version of the two man. But I love my tents. A guy can't have enough tents. I think every person needs to have, you know, at least half a dozen tents because you never know in what circumstances you need which kind of a tent. So how many do you have? Uh, let me see. I got a minimum of three. Actually, I'm a little a little fallen down on the job here. I think okay. I only have five, just well, five tents. Do you have the Durston X-Mid Pro 2 yet? There, no. I mean, there's only they're only available for pre-order right now, so I don't have one. But I'll tell you, I am sorely tempted. And as a father, I feel, pers- you know, fathers need to support their kids. And totally. so I'm going to have a chat with my wife and run that by her. You know, I think we could, I think we need to help Dan out here. For Let's sure. get one of these tents. For sure. All right. Well, um, let's get into uh, what I want to talk about uh, with you today. And that is uh, the new video that you guys are posting to the channel. Uh, Kirk, you and Ching, our uh, creative director, has been working on this. It's in the editing process. I think it's supposed to go up, you said, Tuesday? Tuesday, yep. All right. Well, here's the trailer. This past year on my channel, I discussed various issues that were often mentioned by former evangelical Christians who had abandoned their faith. This final video, however, directly answers the question, why do some people who were formerly sincere evangelical Christians abandon their faith? Okay, so that's going up Tuesday. But uh, can you give us a little bit of a preview? What are we going to see? Uh, sure. I, um, I've, I've had a real interest in this for, oh, probably four years now. I mean, I've always been interested in the question, but in the last, say, four years, I actually actively began to uh, dive into it, reading books by people who had studied this already. and But finally, it culminated in just listening to a ton of testimonials or stories from people who we refer to as ex-evangelicals or people of deconverted, so to speak, from Christianity. And uh, at first, I, uh, I approached this like I think a lot of other people have approached it. I just listened to what the reasons were, and I thought, oh, let's just respond to the reasons. And then if other people are thinking about deconverting, uh, you know, they just look at these responses to the reasons why people can deconvert, and maybe it'll help them. But I noticed there was something missing. It wasn't just what they were, the reasons they were giving for leaving Christianity uh, well on my way, about a year and a half into this, I would say, I just had a revelation. I said, wait a sec. I have paid attention to what they're saying, but I have totally missed what they did not talk about. And uh, when I had that revelation, I realized, oh, there's a whole nother layer, a deeper layer under the reasons. The reasons are things that I say apologists might respond to, like, what about all the evil and suffering in this world? You know, I just can't take it anymore. I'm out of here. I'm, you know, there's no God. Well, an apologist would come back and say, well, actually, and then give a, you know, a long talk or a seminar or a series of short videos on it, whatever, that are very good. But I realized that's not actually the issue, these questions. These are secondary things that arise out of the primary problem. And the primary problem, I think, is from what I could see is that they never talked about um, leaving the presence of God, so to speak. What do I mean by that? Well, 
let's talk about marriage. Uh, if I've been married for 41 years, over 41 now, and I can't even conceive of leaving my wife, leaving her. Um, we're, our lives are just so entwined. We've shared so much together. But let's say I did. And I would be talking about it afterwards with other people. What would I talk about? What were the reasons that I gave? Well, if I just talked about how I felt marriage was so, there's so many expectations that come with marriage. And there are issues that I don't think are compatible with marriage. And uh, a ton of stuff about why I left the marriage. But I did not talk about her. You could safely assume that I had left a marriage, but I, I had not left a relationship because it was pretty much not there. Um, and this is what I saw with these evangelical testimonials. Now, I'm not saying they never were Christians, because I think that's very unhelpful. Because uh, I think the symptom of not experiencing the daily presence of God in your life is not just something that people who aren't Christians experience. I think a lot of, a ton of Christians just are, and, and I would say sincere Christians, really trying to make it work. And I think a lot of these people I listen to, I would give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I think they were sincere Christians, pastors, missionaries, and so forth. They were sincere, but there was something just empty in the whole thing. And so they found out, they, they found themselves living an expectation-based Christianity. And when they left for faith, they often will say they felt such an enormous sense of freedom. And I can totally understand. I mean, if you've been living your life trying to measure up to expectations that you perceive or actually hear about within a religion such as Christianity, and it's just it's exhausting and leaving all these expectations behind you just freed them up to be themselves, they would say. They're just now free to be themselves. So, um, like, I, I've seen a lot of these YouTube videos where people are saying, Here, here's, what I, here's what I grew up in. And it was often a very legalistic or fundamental, a fundamentalist style of Christianity where it was expectations. It was... Uh, you have to wear a dress if you're a woman or you're you're not allowed to like i grew up in a bit of that and like when i was about uh, 10 years old i went to church camp and i wore a muscle shirt and i didn't have muscles i was a little scrawny scrawny kid and they made me change my shirt because i would have caused somebody to stumble <laughs> and so like i can totally understand if, if this is what you grow up in you're um all you're all you're going to do is feel the legalistic aspect of mm -hmm. i think people have an intuitive sense their moral intuitions tell them that some things really are sketchy questionable maybe we shouldn't do that or whatever but then that allows them to there's other rules that are made up by religions and they look at those and that in moral intuition does not support it just it just seems to be wow like who made up the rule don't wear muscle shirts like uh and so it's just not there's a disconnect there and so there's no real reason to measure up to these things other than that they're just the expectations now i should say though that not all the deconverters left what i might say an expectation driven Although I think that was, there were expectations in every case, but others came from maybe more of a, <clears throat> I don't know how to say it, like 
a very shallow type of experience. I mean, you, it was all about having a, a, a really euphoric experience during the church service or during the praise and worship concert. In fact, one of the, um, the people who uh, deconverted was a former um, band member of a Christian band, and he said you, he would often feel this sense of euphoria. And many Christians think that's the presence of God. You know, the spirit was really here tonight. We had, like, the lights were low. We had the artificial smoke and the rhythmic drumming of the percussion and, you know, um, flashing colored lights and so forth and repetition. And you can actually produce a physiological response where the endorphins are released and you feel a sense of euphoria. But he pointed out that he had the same experience at a Coldplay concert. And uh, I totally understood. In fact, I, I have been to Christian praise and worship concerts where I just, well, I just wanted to get out of here because this is just physiological manipulation. And, and so some Christians mistake that, or a lot do maybe, for the presence of God. So they might disagree with me and say, hey, no, I experienced the presence of God, you know, lots of times at these concerts with, uh, you know, everything going. But uh, that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about the presence of God. So yeah, expectation-based. There was also culture-led versions of Christianity. That that played heavy into the kind of issues they had with Christianity. And when I looked at all these issues, I mean, I could give answers to these, but there was a deeper problem there as well, and that is every one of us is programmed by our culture to think that um, you know our cultural standards are what we measure things by, including other cultures and God and religion. Or Christianity or the Bible. So um, that is a serious problem because we don't even realize we're judging other things via our culture. And so there's an enormous influence that culture has. And so when culture starts leading Christianity or there's this unperceived assumption that it needs to be approved by culture, you're going to run into a serious problem. Either culture has to step down as the ultimate authority on what's right and wrong and just and good, or your religion does. One of them is going to win uh, and one's going to lose. So I, I want to go back to um, sort of the uh, ex-evangelical who has had those experiences where they feel, okay, the, the emotional aspect of our how our bodies react to different things. And um, there's lots of places in the Bible where there was obviously an emotional attachment to Jesus or, or um, I think of Noah when God appeared, or Noah, uh, Moses when God appeared in the fire, uh, in, the, in the bush that didn't burn. And all of a sudden you've got this amazing emotion that he's experiencing where he falls flat. And the emotion is part of our, how we're created. It can be manipulated for sure. Yep. Um, as as people sometimes would say, um, if all you have is emotion, it's very dangerous. But there's also this: if all you have is the facts, all you have yeah. is this understanding of, oh yeah, okay, I've I've read this thing through fifty times. I know it very well. I believe it, but I, I've, I've actually never had 
a connection to God because yeah, it, that, that's all I've had. So how do you get from, or where, where's the balance there? How, yeah, well, that's, that is an excellent question because it's, um, well, basically if I was to sum it up in maybe one sentence and then maybe I'll clarify that a little bit. Um, it's God, it's the awareness of the presence of God that will produce all sorts of responses, including including emotion. It could be euphoria, it could be a deep sense of peace. It could be an enormous sense of relief to know that you're loved. I mean, there's so many different things that could follow, but presence of God first, then all of these things just unfold. So people notice that, oh, you know, I think in the sense of euphoria, um, I, I mean, maybe I had an, uh, an experience with God and I had this experience here. So let's make that happen again. So let's then put the, let's produce this euphoria and then, uh, then we will be experiencing the presence of God. So I would say God, the presence of God first, then causes a lot of other things. It, and it's not just euphoria, but a lot of other things. As opposed to a lot of other things um, producing the so-called presence of God. Like you just can't conjure up God. I was at, I attended one church one summer and uh, you could always tell when it was time for people to start experiencing the presence of God because the the person on the piano would start taking their finger and they'd, they'd put their, they'd start at the bass and they just run it right up and down to the top and then down like this. And it would go, and the crowd would just go wild. And then it was, it was uh, well, I guess they believed they were experiencing the presence of God. But as a guest, as a person who wasn't programmed to, uh, to just think that's the presence of God, I, you know, I actually was very nervous in a situation like that because it just seemed like the whole crowd was out of control. I actually pretended I was praying. I stuck my head down between my legs and hoped nobody saw me because I just didn't know what was going to happen. But that, see, my point is you don't cause the presence of God. Uh, and I think a lot of times in Christianity and even in praise and worship times, we we just try and cause the presence of God or produce the feeling as if God was there. However, if God really is there, you don't need any kind of manipulation or anything. You can be, you can be doing absolutely nothing, staring out the window at a rainy day, and the if the presence of God is with you, uh, there's just so many different things. It's it's rich. It's not just euphoria. It may be absolutely no kind of emotion at all. But I do believe we are given emotions for very good reason. And I think this is part of why people abandon the faith, because they they thought they might have been experiencing the presence of God at praise and worship times or whatever, but it was just a physiological thing. And maybe they realized that eventually. But there was no, you see, the heart and soul of Christianity is to love God because he has first loved us. It's love. And, and it's pretty hard to be experiencing love in a completely flat, unemotional thing. We don't love, like you were saying, we don't love a list of doctrines. We don't love, you know, a bunch of creeds or rules or religious traditions. That's, you don't love those things. I mean, you can love them in a sense like you might love, you know, 
apples or something, but it's a real living being, a living God we love, and he loves us. And so there has to be some sort of an experience of the presence of God, but that follows from the presence of God. We just don't manufacture experiences and try and convince ourselves we're experiencing the presence of God. So it, when you talk about the presence of God, you're talking about the feeling of him being close, the feeling of him being present. I That is a tough one to answer, Sheldon, because I have been asked that even as recently as this week on a, on a forum, an online forum where there's a lot of atheists. And I have a friend of mine who is a ex-evangelical who's, who's asked me a lot on that. What is it? What do you mean experiencing the presence of God? And um, even in our conversations, it's clear that even though he was once a very enthusiastic Christian, a youth leader in his church, um, he doesn't know what I'm talking about when I talk about experiencing the presence of God. So what is that? And, and it feeling, I would say, maybe is one way to describe it. I prefer to describe it as the awareness of a presence of a person. Oh, it's an awareness. I don't have to, let's say if my wife is, we were in, in the same room, she's reading a book, I'm reading a book or whatever. I might not even be looking at her, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of her presence. It, I would say first and foremost, for me at least, it's an awareness. Now that might not be what everybody would describe it as. So there might not necessarily be any feeling that I could describe, but first and foremost, it's, it's an awareness of a presence, and this presence is of a living being that's vastly greater than any human, and he is with me right now. He is with me, around me. Um, difficult to explain, but I'd say for me it's an awareness of the presence of, of God, of a being, of a person right here with me, and he's vastly greater than any human. Now, when, when I think of the Psalms, there's lots of times where... Um, the question, are you, are you there? Like, are, I don't feel you're there. Is that because the presence of God is missing for, for David at the time? Or is it, uh, I'm not getting the answers to the prayers I want right now. Like, what, what, do you have an answer to that? That's know. a very good question too. Like, um, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking. When you asked that question, it reminded me of uh, an ancient King by the name of Hezekiah, who is, Basically, his life is described in the Bible. And he went through a lot of good times, and he went through some pretty bad times too. But there's this one statement that really hit me. And it says how good, like there's a summary of his life and how good Hezekiah was and God, you know, how God took care of him. It says, but then it says this, and God left him alone only to test him. Like there were times in his life where God kind of, where Hezekiah had no sense of the, of the presence of God with him. And God said he did that on purpose because it's kind of like, um, a refining fire. Do you do, how will you do in your love for someone when they're not, when you think they're not there, even for husbands and wives, like men who work and go on business trips or wives and women who do that, the real question is not how they behave when they're at home, but how they behave when they don't think their spouse is around. And that could be a test. I mean, you might think I'll be always true to my spouse, and maybe you will. But having gone through those times away, you come back, it's, it's with a greater appreciation of one's spouse, greater appreciation, greater love, 
if you are true to them in the present, when they're present, when they're not present. Now, in a technical sense, God's presence is always there, but it's certainly God can just create a, as if he's not there to the person, as if there's just a wall. And he will do that intentionally. So as, um, uh, from the point, like, you, you grew up in a, uh, in a uh, farm here in, in Manitoba, where I live now. Um, what was your growing up in the, in, in the church? What did it look like? Did you go to church when you were a kid? Did you, uh, when did you experience who Jesus is for the first time? I would say my first experience of God was outside one night. I, I remember to this, I was a little kid, little boy. I don't know exactly how old I was. I think um, given the other events that were happening at the time, I would be three years old when this occurred. And I, and I know people are a little skeptical sometimes because maybe they don't remember what they did when they were three, but there's lots of people who remember lots of events when they're three, and that's the case with me. They could be corroborated. So uh, I went out one night, and we lived like 10 miles from near a small town, 100 miles from near a city. And so the sky was jet black with millions of stars. And I, st I remember stepping out there, and I was just looking up. And a God just seemed everywhere. And that was my first experience of the presence of God, except there was a problem. He seemed also infinitely far from me. There was a massive gulf. He seemed everywhere, but at the same time, the, he, was, he was not with me. There was, so how did you know it was God, though? In, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, it's just, uh, Sorry, well, I'd heard the word God, and I heard about God. And so this my experience of this this being that is greater than the universe who created it, like there was this intuitive awareness of something of a person who's truly vast. And so I just took the word that I've been told as a little kid and said, "This must be it. This is this is God. If there's a being out here, there's a person. It's not just the universe. The universe was impressive. The stars." There was something behind it, and that's what I sensed. In fact, it bothered me so much that I, I only stood there for, I don't know, maybe a minute, and then I went back in the house because this sense of he's everywhere, but he's I'm separated from him was just really disturbed me. So anyways, I grew up um, on the farm. My mother explained to me why. My mother was herself uh, relatively new. She hadn't grown up in a Christian household, and uh, she was only 18 years old when she, I was born. And she was just, so she was just a young woman learning this all for herself at the same time. But she did tell me that at some point I need to, you know, the, the things that I've done that were wrong, uh, those actually create the gulf between God and myself. But God became a person. Jesus Christ stepped into history and actually demonstrated his love for us so that he could, perfectly satisfy the demands of justice for the things that I had done were wrong already. And even as a boy, I knew I'd done wrong things. So that he then perfectly satisfied demands of love, but I had to decide if I wanted to accept that gift of his presence, eternal life, and forgiveness for the things I've done. And, and mom told me, I can't tell you what to do here. I can explain what you 
need to do if you want that relationship, but you will have to decide. And when you do, you will belong to God for the rest of your life. Well, as a little kid belonging to God for the rest of your life, that's a pretty scary thing. And so I said, I'm not ready for that. But I think it was good that she told me that because I took it very seriously. But after laying in bed many nights thinking about this, finally it occurred to me, if God loved me enough to die for me, I can trust him. And I just prayed a simple prayer and asked Jesus Christ to come into my life and, and, and give me eternal life, basically. Forgive me for the things and just take me to heaven when I die. I was a kid, eh? So it's a simple prayer, but I really meant it. And I remember that night to this day as well. But I would say experiencing God was a complex thing that as the years have gone by, my awareness of his presence with me has really increased in various ways. So I'd say it's kind of like developing a second sight. You see with your eyes, but then you feel with your hands. But there's another perception there that's probably a perception of the soul. It's the awareness of God. And uh, there's been a ton of different ways I've experienced that. So when, when you think of the ex-evangelical not experiencing that, or maybe they did at the start, and mm -hmm. and that sort of whether it's sin comes into play and um, and all of a sudden that, that gulf starts coming in, you don't experience that anymore, and then all you really yeah. have is what you what your beliefs are um how do you prevent that um how do you prevent that from going away well i think that is the ultimate question um when we're talking about deconversion this is the ultimate question that every christian needs to ask how do i prevent this now um i know that there's two major different opposing schools of thought on this whole issue when is the Calvinist, hardcore Calvinist school of thought, or just the Calvinist school of thought, is that if you truly are a Christian, you will never fall away from the living God. You know, you'll never be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Type because, of thing. because God won't let you. Yeah, you're, it's a covenant uh, that, that you can't break and so forth. And so then various passages of the Bible will be presented to support that view. The other view is, no, there's plenty of warnings in the Bible against falling away from the living God and and so forth so um either way like the the solution is not to say they never experienced the presence of god so when you say maybe they actually did i would say maybe they actually did too like maybe there uh, there is this experience of god and i think in a very general sense every human being has ever lived that's old enough to realize they're experiencing something does experience in some way the presence of god because god says there's two major ways. One is through his creation, the nature. He says his invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature can be seen in what he's created. So that's the way one everybody experiences. The other one is their own moral intuitions, which actually condemn them a lot of times. You know, you feel guilty for doing something. So um, everybody might. And these, how do you prevent that is the real question. And I would I would say this, and, and my years of thinking about this uh, i think there's i think the answer is obvious not that i saw it very clearly for i mean it's i mean it's a answer that was always there i think every christian knows it as an intellectual fact about what the bible says 
but the answer is actually quite simple and that is to actually pursue loving god with all your heart soul mind and strength that to me is the heart and soul of living christianity and jesus really emphasized that he said this is the first and foremost command by first it means um this is the no he said this is the great and foremost this is the greatest thing you can ever do is to love god with all your heart soul mind and the highest priority you ought to ever to have now he says if you love me then a whole pile of things happen it's like opening a door and uh, then all of these questions may still be there, but they're not being asked in a vacuum. Like, uh, you could ask me a ton of questions about some woman I was supposedly married to, but I had very little personal experience with. Basically, that the core of that marriage is empty. And so answering all these other questions just become an exercise in, in meaninglessness, as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm just not interested in it. And so you can have very good questions, get golden answers, but if this heart and soul is not there, it just becomes so empty. And so like, this is not doing it for me type of thing. So why would we possibly love God? And he explains it in the New Testament that God is the origin of every good thing given and every perfect gift. And you think about that for a second. He is the origin of love. He is the origin of music, of beauty, honor, Every good thing, art, every good thing has an origin in God, and every perfect gift has comes from God. He is the origin of these things. And so um, what could possibly, I mean, think of all the things you like in this life. What is it about those things? And you would say, well, I like beautiful music, or I like the landscape photography. Why? Because there's so much beauty in nature. Ultimately, you are asked to love the origin of all of these amazing and good and perfect things. What could possibly be better than this? And in my own life, I have found from experience, there is nothing compares to loving God and experiencing his love for me. Because he actually loves you in a way that actually, if he actually, if you, let's say he fully unveiled the full magnitude of his love, he would just physically blow you away. The circuits in your brain just couldn't handle it. You die right on the spot. You just can't live in your mortal bodies with a full onslaught of the love of God. That's why we're going to have to be, at one day, be created, recreate, or re-raised from the dead as immortal. Then we will be able to experience the full magnitude of the love of God. So that is the answer to the question, how can you prevent this? I used to think it was by explaining all the answers to the questions that they have. So you would put together a whole apologetics curriculum and then the person will fall away from God. I think that is vitally important because the questions are still there regardless, but it's not the fundamental solution. Without the love of God, I just fear everything else collapses. Uh, you can, there, were, there are apologists, former apologists, who are now amongst the, deacon, the ex-evangelicals. So they knew the answers, but or at least they sort of had decent answers to the questions, but that just didn't do it. I mean, why be in a marriage where you're married to a non-existent being that you never experience? You know, if, if I was being silly to say I'm married to lady X, Y, and Z, where is she? I don't know. I've never experienced her, never seen her, I'm, but I got all the obligations of marriage. That would be absurd. And that's why what I fear a lot of Christians are experiencing in this life. They've totally missed the heart and soul of Christianity. Well, excellent answer. Uh, we will continue this discussion next week. 
but um, yeah, I I would agree. If you if you lose that love part, if you if you're whether it's in marriage or with God, if you lose that love part, and it, it's it's two ways, right? If if one way mm-hmm. it stops, um, yeah, the relationship's gone, and it doesn't matter how much you have in your head. Uh, it's just not going to hold. Well, thanks, uh, Kirk. We will see you again next week. My pleasure. Thanks, Sheldon. Bye, all. Thank you.